Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme, on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital, is Alex Childs. Alex is a director at Pearl Hackney Wick, a local cafe and food hospitality venue based in Hackney Wick, East London. Um, Alex, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Hello, Scott. It's an absolute absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Mm, It's a real pleasure as well for us to welcome you onto the airways with us. Um, Normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, how that has affected the hospitality industry in particular, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there. Um, To what extent has it affected you and your business? Well, obviously, um, with the ongoing COVID situation, um, hospitality has been at the forefront of, of many people's minds because it's uh, such a, a large, large area of industry, um, especially within the capital, but across the nation. Um, and it's it's been very it's been very challenging to adapt to all the situations that we've been put into, the changing regulations and the government um, basically deciding. What, where the best, how the best to organise the country, and the best sort of procedures to do that. So, it's been a it's been a constant challenge, um, but uh, an interesting one. And not not, although although obviously very detrimental for the for the, the whole industry, it's uh, proven proving an interesting challenge. Should we say? Do you think it's going to take some time for the industry itself to recover? And the reason why I ask that question is because even when restrictions can start to be lifted and COVID-19 is no longer an issue when, say, we have a working vaccine, fingers crossed, because of the impact of all of this on consumer confidence and the anxiety that's going to be lingering as a result of all of this, it's highly likely that people are going to be voluntarily social distancing. It could take some time for them to venture back out and be eating out at venues and also as well. Um, people might just be comfortable having the extra sort of procedures in place such as the plastic screens such as the hand sanitizer stations and all of those things yes yeah, so I, I definitely think there's there will be a lot of challenges ahead in terms of of gaining sort of consumer confidence back in in socializing and and uh and in the whole of the hospitality industry um it's 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 difficult to know exactly without, obviously we're all expecting a, a vaccine, hopefully in the not too distant future. But in the, in the, in the meantime, I feel like the, the key part of, of, from, from the leadership, from leading the business point of view is learning how to adapt your business to, to be more, more adapted to the, to the new normal and to, uh, and to find new ways that you can possibly expand your business that you would never normally thought of before. Um, I mean, for, for me personally, um, we, when we first started sort of returning after the, the, the lockdown, we were never really much of a takeaway venue, but we managed to uh, sort of adapt what we did, adapt our services. We had a bit more time on our hands and we'd be quite creative. Um, and that was uh, along all levels of, of, of management from myself down to every, every member of staff that we brought back. 
um, brought new ideas and and um, we we had to we had to sort of bring back a new level of creativity to to the industry to the business. Yes, yeah, certainly businesses have had to be adaptable um, in the wake of COVID-19 to, of course, not just survive, but also just be able to keep providing um, a, a service um, in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the few positives, I suppose, that we have seen during this period. For yourselves, would you say that having to adapt to this whole new reality has been positive in the sense that it's maybe taught you something about yourself and your leadership capabilities, about the team of people you work with? I think so. Um, I mean, from a, from an entirely sort of personal basis, um, I've I've learned that there are we are we we are effectively a, a small independent, um, which is we have we employ about sort of just over twenty members of staff um, from one single venue, um, and what I've realised is that actually we are we have a a level of commitment from from the staff that you know it's almost the the culture of people coming together and uh, and and working towards towards something and uh, and when when we came back from lockdown we i think it became quite apparent that everybody was pulling in the same direction and so you do gain positives from that and you you people gain a little a little slice of sort of um sort of they've become quite empowered because it's part of their own they feel part part of the team and part of the business which maybe is because obviously we're we are an independent but so that's something we can definitely gain from from that and know that if everyone's working in the same direction that we can actually we can achieve what we want to achieve um which we which we have done in the in the months after the after the lockdown I think you find that in times of adversity, team members really do bring the best out in themselves, don't they? And um, just out of interest, uh, because there's been a great amount of sort of anxiety and worry during all of the uncertainty of COVID, how has it been sort of managing the people you work with from a mental health point of view? Has that held up quite well? Well, that that was one of my sort of key, key areas in returning Back to back to work and back to the business is we we took it very slowly in terms of we we did not rush into um, sort of as soon as we were allowed to open um, opening the door straight away or <clears throat> excuse me um, having everyone involved straight away basically we we took it like slowly step by step but under the under the advice of all of the staff predominantly um, you can. You can't really be expected to look out for for anyone other than the people that are are on the premises all the time. You can do your best to look after everybody, um, but you have to take advice from from the staff and and how and make sure they feel safe in coming to work and feel because otherwise you can't expect people to perform um, and to actually have confidence in coming to work unless they they feel safe. Otherwise, and you you. And then that, in turn, basically will bring make people feel more comfortable in the in the mental health area because you can they they know they're secure and they they will always have a voice. You know they can always come to me mm. and say maybe we could do this better or maybe this is something we've noticed. Um, and so yeah, the, the 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 staff and their their safety breeds more confidence into into how they feel when they come to work. 
It does, exactly. And um, it can be very mentally taxing, I suppose, when you're in a leadership position, having to take on that responsibility of looking after everybody around you. And therefore, sometimes your own sort of mental health and well-being can be neglected as a result of that. Um, How has it been sort of for you just taking a step back as and when you need to and being able to just safeguard your own sort of well-being? Um, for me, for me personally, I, I think it's a um, it's a very important part of being the, the head of an organisation is to yeah. to be to be strong to be strong. But obviously, everyone can be affected by mental health um, issues and and everything like that. And so, it's it's something that I I, I wouldn't be afraid to I, to address those on myself. But I, I feel like it's a I, I honestly, I, I've got such a good team around me. In terms of, I've, I have managers who are very sort of imperative to how the how the business runs and have supported me along the way as well, and sort of given me the confidence and said, "We can do this if we push forward." So it's again, it's you 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 take support. The, it's not just support from one direction to the other. It's not from top to bottom or bottom mm-hmm. to top. It's a te- it's a team effort, and everyone. If you have the right team, everyone will support each other. You're only as strong as your weakest link, I suppose, Mm. if you want to put a phrase on it. No, it certainly makes sense. And it It takes me very nicely onto a quote from Nelson Mandela, actually. He once said to surround yourself with people who are better than you. Basically, surround Mm -hmm. yourself with a good team. And it's some of the best Mm -hmm. pieces of advice for young aspiring entrepreneurs out there that you could really have to build a team of really good people and speaking of young and aspiring entrepreneurs in fact Alex um, given that you are somebody who has had experience of starting your own business building it up there are so mm-hmm. many youngsters out there right now that are going to be downhearted about the ongoing situation what it's doing to the economy what it's doing to their employment prospects so what would your message be to them to really get them to pick their heads up and get on the road to success well, the, the best thing I could say and the best advice I could offer is to, to although now may seem like the time is not right, the best thing to do is, is to always be ready for whatever, for whatever you want to achieve, whatever you want to do, is to be ready to, to take that opportunity when it arises. And maybe, maybe now is not the time, but maybe in six months, the time will be entirely right for you, or maybe in a year, maybe in two years. It took me quite, I think, maybe four years to, to find the right opportunity for me uh, to, to start my own business. Um, and eventually, I got it exactly right. I got exactly what I needed when I needed it. So I think the, 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 the real key is to just be ready and to when, when your opportunity comes, say yes to that opportunity. It is about seizing on the opportunities as and when they arise, isn't it? And there will be opportunities as a result of this. And when there is a crisis, when there is a recession, there's always inevitably an opportunity for someone somewhere. And fortunately, we do have a great entrepreneurial spirit in this country. So that does hold Mm -hmm. us in good stead for the future. Yes, indeed. Yes, I think that's the, uh, the, 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 the best way of looking at it is to see, well, from, from the dark times, you can you can find find the light at the end of it all. And thinking of the uh, the future now in just a little bit more detail before we do wrap mm-hmm. things up, Alex, because I'm conscious that our time on the programme is beginning to draw to its close. No problem. Over the course of the next 12 months, um, we know that the new normal is going to be here to stay for a significant portion of that. And there will be mm-hmm. challenges to having to get to grips with these prolonged restrictions. But as we move through the winter, we get to the spring and hopefully we then 
have a working vaccine in place what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as a business over the course of the whole of the next year and indeed where do you see yourselves being in 12 months time when hopefully we can look to the long-term future with a bit more optimism well i mean hopefully the say the the confidence will come back with the 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 anticipated vaccine and i I think it's a from from the, the hospitality point of view I think people will be fully behind that that people want to support the industry um, and especially when it comes when they feel safe they will um, sort of I think come back in relatively without without little uh, with very few problems um, but yeah the, the the main aim for myself is to kind of try to carry on being creative with the with the options that we that we offer, um, try to figure out if there's ways of things that we, we could be doing that we, that we aren't already, and just trying to sort of expand. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a growth process, and we, we, would like to, we would like to grow into, into other industries or into other facets of our own industry, so to speak, um, become a – we realize that our supply chains are, are fragile, when they when it comes to to certain aspects of the business, so we we would like to be producing more of our our thing own products in house and everything like that. So it's you we've taken we've seen our weaknesses and so we we want to sort of try and strengthen those um, and within the next twelve months hopefully expand our business into maybe some more uh, production rather than just the the retail side of hospitality. Seems like there's plenty to be getting your teeth into over the course of the year, the next few months, Alex. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world in making some of these um, ambitions a real reality. And I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point over the course of the next year and have you back on the programme just to see how things are getting on at Pearl Hackney Wick. And we can also just assess what has changed in the time between our discussions and where we are as a country by that point. That would be wonderful. It would be my honour to come back. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. It's been wonderful having you on the air with us. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company, Alex. And uh, most importantly as well, um, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with COVID-19 yet, but let's just keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in this rut for too much longer. Thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate it. I'd also reiterate that last message there to everybody tuning into our podcast today. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of other people because it makes such a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for us to welcome Alex Childs, director at Pearl Hackney Wick, onto today's programme. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, who, during an illustrious football career, scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City among other clubs however of course he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final and that was after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now Um, so Jeff during his interview will be looking back at some of the important and influential leaders throughout his career as well as leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who have been doing all they can during this very difficult time so Jeff will be joining us shortly and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst who joins us on the program today um Sir Jeff good morning good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. 
Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I, I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want wanting to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, I, I've I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hanstil Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that that philosophy is right. You're just going to 
there's an element of, 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 of risks uh, of, of making this. But it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. 
um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years Harry's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it, yes, I think it, Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into the coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road uh, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty, um, um, Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them. And uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But... What was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great... Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise... It's funny how you look at... I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
smother balls up and not just setting balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised I think it's, and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. 
did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years. And it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I made very little contribution to that success that club had so um, yes it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her daughter over there so that was, that was a good time completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. 
but one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.